is Acts chapter 3, please, and we'll read the whole chapter. It's 26 verses, but it is one entity, really, so we'll read Acts chapter 3 together. Now, Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour, and a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked an alms. And Peter fastened his eyes upon him with John, said, uh, Look on us, and he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength and he leaping up stood and walked and entered with them into the temple walking and leaping and praising God and all the people saw him walking and praising God and they knew that it was he which sat for arms at the beautiful gate of the temple and they were filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened unto him and as the lame man which was healed held Peter and John all the people ran together unto them in the porch that is called Solomon's greatly wondering And when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, Ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this, or why look ye so earnestly on us, as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk? The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But ye denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer, to be granted unto you, and killed the Prince of Life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong, whom ye see and know. Yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of ye all. <coughs> and now, brethren, I wot that through ignorance ye did it, as did also your rulers, but Those things which God before had showed by the mouth of all his prophets, that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord, and he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heavens must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me, him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. It shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people, yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, as many as have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. Ye are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God hath made with our fathers, saying unto Abram, and in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the people be blessed. Unto you, first God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you and turning away every one of you from his iniquities. Now that's our reading, and we trust that the Lord will bless that reading to us this evening. So when you come to this section of Acts, Acts chapter 3, there is a flow, a narrative, a, a flow of events that has started at the beginning of the book of Acts that continues. And what you have really here is the continued response to the events 
at Pentecost, the day of Pentecost that's described in Acts chapter 2. Uh, 3,000 people were saved, huge crowd of people. Um, were saved when they heard Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2 and they were saved and they were baptised and they laid the foundation of, of practice and of priority for a New Testament church, a gathering out of God's people from amongst the nations if you like and a gathering together in fellowship and in relationship and in community together and you have the basic practice of that established which is developed as the book of acts goes on and as the epistles were written but you have it here in seed form at least uh, in acts chapter 2 they're continuing to devote themselves in acts chapter 2 to the apostles doctrine to teaching to fellowship to, to breaking of bread and to prayers and their fellowship at the end of acts chapter 2 goes way beyond church gathering even though there was no church gathering, but that type of church gathering goes beyond that and they are not just socialising together and not even simply learning together. It's not religious attendance only, but they are together in all things and they are daily of one mind together in the temple and they're sharing meals together, they're fellowshipping together and they are worshipping together and they are sacrificing the sacrificially caring for one another and for their needs, which was particular to that time um, in the way that it was done. And the effect of this was remarkable. In fact, it was one of these times in church history, which is not often, but one of these times when the church was functioning and was popular because it was functioning as it should. Normally when the church functions as it should, it doesn't lead to popularity, at least to hostility. But in this occasion, that wasn't so. And they had favour with the people. And the Lord was adding to the church daily those that should be saved. It's all a good, it's all good and it's all positive. And there was a sense of awe among the people at the wonders and signs that were taking place by the apostles. So you've got all of that. And Acts chapter 3 gives one incident and one sermon, it's like a snapshot of one thing that took place in the midst of all of this. And so we're going to read about that one incident and see the witness of Peter and John and the sermon that they preached. Now the setting here is in verse number one. Uh, you sing choruses about this for the children. Silver and gold have I none, such as I have give I thee. And you can probably quote the chorus more than the, than the actual version. You're all smiling because most of you have been to camp and you know these or Sunday school or whatever. And this is the setting. Peter and John get up to the temple at the hour of prayer, which was the ninth hour. Now, Peter and John often were found together. You read of this in the Acts often. They took a lead in those early days. Before Paul was saved, Peter and John seemed to be the main men. Along with James, they formed the inner circle, you remember, of the Lord Jesus. You remember the Mount of Transfiguration, Jairus' daughter being raised, and so on. And Peter, James, and John were privileged in having a very uniquely close relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ when he was here. And they experienced things that some of the other disciples did not. In Galatians chapter 2 and verse 9, they are described as being reputed to be the pillars of the church in Jerusalem. And so they had this reputation. 
And in Acts chapter 8, you remember it's Peter and John that are sent to Samaria in response to the report that the Samaritans had received the word of God. So they are the kind of main men. So when you take a snapshot of what's going on in Jerusalem, the the camera, as if it was, focuses in on these two very public individuals, two very um, public leading men in this local church as it's being formed. And they go up together. And they go into the temple Now, early Christians, you remember, the vast majority of them, if not all of them, were from a Jewish background. And we're very familiar with the temple. The temple had an extremely significant place in their life up until this point. It was a building. It was the centre of their national worship, centre of their national life, not just worship. And those who were in Jerusalem, and they should have gone up to Jerusalem three times a year, They would have been familiar with this building if they were devout at all. And when you were in Jerusalem, if you were able, then you would have gone to the temple three times a day. And there was a call to worship corporately three times a day. There was the morning and the evening. So there was the morning sacrifice and the evening sacrifice according to the Old Testament law and you remember that was for the tabernacle but it also was practiced in the temple so that there was a continual sacrifice being offered there was the morning sacrifice there was the evening sacrifice and there was the midday call to prayer and so three times a day they would have gone up to the temple and the early christians continued that in these early days so that's the context and they're going up at the hour of prayer which was the ninth hour. So you had 9 a.m., 12 noon, and 3 p.m. And this was 3 p.m. And you're introduced then in the narrative to a certain lame man. Verse 2, it's almost like a parable. And you've got this certain lame man, and we're introduced to the beggar as he's found begging at the gate. And it's called the gate, which is beautiful. Now, this man had been a cripple all his life, unable to walk, and as a consequence, was begging. Now, you come across beggars in the New Testament um, quite often. And some of them are well known to us who know the Bible. And you have uh, blind Bartimaeus. And you've got all these characters, real people. This is a real person. And no doubt family or friends, probably friends, unlikely family. If he had family, probably wouldn't have been begging. But friends who would carry him to this place this was his slot and i've seen this abroad more more even than in the uk and you have people who have disabilities or problems or whatever and uh, they are taken to their spot particularly in tourist areas and that's very important to them because it's lucrative and that's where they are all day this would have been the case here several good places no doubt for this sort of begging uh, and this appeal for arms in Jerusalem but this was probably a prime spot people are feeling religious they're feeling charitable they're feeling devotional and at this time at this place that would have been a prime spot with people going up to the temple to worship God and as they go up to worship God he's crying out for arms there's that old thing about he cried for arms and he got legs. But this is A-L-M-S. And he's crying for money. I know you're cringing. He's crying for money and he's crying for these charitable donations. Well, when he 
is put down to beg. It says here, and I think it's significant that it does say this, that every day he is at the gate which is called Beautiful. Now that, apparently, I read, was a gate that separated the court of the women from the court of the Gentiles. It apparently, according to Josephus, the Jewish historian, was made of Corinthian brass, was very large. It took 20 men to open and shut this gate. So it's a huge, big, valuable, beautiful gate. And there's a contrast between that and him. And Peter and John arrive. So you get verse number uh, three down to verse seven. You get this interaction that takes place. So he sees Peter and John, verse three. They're about to go into the temple and he does what he does with everyone. He asks for alms. Alms would just be a charitable donation given for religious reasons. Peter responds in verse four. Look at the response of Peter. Number one, he stares at him. My authorised Bible says he fastened his eyes upon him. He stared at him. That's the same verb when uh, the Bible describes the disciples who were looking at the Lord Jesus as he ascended into heaven. Why gaze ye? That's the idea. So he fixed his eyes. Peter stops and stares. And the beggar's not really paying attention to him. He doesn't notice Peter. So Peter's not like right in front of him, got his attention. Peter is staring at him intently. And I think he's processing things that he sees. And the second response is this. He speaks to him. So he stares and then he speaks. And he demands attention. So he says, look at us. So he's looking at him and he says to him, look at us. So he demands his attention. The man looks at him. And it's interesting that there's so much detail given here for this one incident. And verse 5, he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. So he's a typical interaction, nothing dramatic, nothing remarkable. Uh, Peter stares at him and says, look at us. The man looks at him, expecting to get what he's asking for, which is money. The third response of Peter is to adjust his expectations. So in verse 6, he basically says, I have no money. Peter says, silver and gold have I none. So I've got no coins, no cash to give to you today. But what I have to give to you, I will. And so he says, but such as I have, give I thee. And he does so in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. His fourth response to him is to heal him. So suddenly the narrative sort of is bouncing along in a kind of normal fashion. Then boom, you get this. Just a step change. What caused Peter to say that? Because I take it there would have been other people who were crying out for arms in that context. He wouldn't have been alone. It would have been a common thing. What causes Peter to stop at him? What causes Peter to say that to him? I don't have any money, but what I do have, I'm going to give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. It's dramatic. There's so much about this man we don't know. Did Peter recognise him? I don't know. Why was he staring at him? Had this man heard of or met the Lord Jesus Christ? 
I am absolutely certain if he'd sat there every day, as was his custom, he would have known what had happened with Jesus of Nazareth. It was in very recent times that the whole city was in a tumult and that Jesus Christ had been taken and crucified and there'd been crowds and it had been a big thing in the city. And he was there every single day, taking it all in, observing it all. We don't know really whether there was faith in this man or the faith was in Peter and John. It's hard to distinguish. But did this man reach out his hand and take Peter as Peter, in verse number 7, took him by the right hand and lifted him up? Was there a stretch out like, like, of faith? Was it like Peter in the water, Lord save me, and he's taken by the hand and lifted out? A lot of that speculation we don't really know. But that's what happened. So he, Peter says the words in the narrative. He'll explain it in his sermon. But in the narrative, there's no explanation given. He just says, I'm going to do this, not in my power, not in my authority, but with all the authority of Jesus Christ, who he is in himself, his identity as the Savior, the Messiah, rise up and walk. And remember, this is consistent with who Peter is. Peter's an apostle. And he had been given the ability and gift to do signs and miracles at this time. It was one evidence of his apostleship, the signs of an apostle, the miracle that could be done. And he takes them and he stands up and a miracle takes place. Now, some things to note about it. Number one, Peter didn't have any money. Well, it's a basic thing, but don't miss it. Remember this, Peter and John were the main men, maybe two out of the three main men out of thousands. Remember that in the previous chapter, people are selling land. People are, are giving and selling their stuff and giving it to meet the needs of others. Peter, James and John are the main men in that whole process and they have not enriched themselves by it. They don't have any money. So the first thing we note is this, that the whole prosperity gospel wasn't happening here. That's for certain. Peter and John were not enriched by the giving of others. The second thing to notice is this, that they did this in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene. So it is by his authority, by his power, and look in his narrative, for he writes the book of Acts, describes medically, Luke being a doctor, what happened. It says, immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. So Luke's giving us, as a physician, what he would have thought when he heard about this. This is actually what happened to him physically, we're told. His feet, his ankle bones, you know, his ankle bones received strength. And then you see the evidence of it very clearly. So he leaps up. He walks, he runs, he's praising God. There's an ecstatic reaction. It's actually remarkable. Remember, this man had been lame from birth. I remember when I was, when was I? First year at school, I think, and I broke my wrist. Sitting on the skateboard coming down Horsewood Road. But I broke my wrist and I was in a cast and I remember being surprised that after I don't know how long the cast was on I can't remember but when it was cut off this arm 
no, it was this arm, because I couldn't write. This arm, my right arm, was about half of what it was before, and it kind of got all skinny compared to this arm. It wasn't being used. And when people don't use their, can't use their legs or other parts of their body, then they are not strengthened and they are not developed as other parts of the body that are being used. This man's legs had never been able to bear his weight. He had never been able to walk, and that had been from birth. He, this isn't Peter just hauling them to his feet. This is a miracle. And his muscles, his tendons, his legs that had never borne his weight. Also, the training of his brain to walk. He'd never walked in his life. So when you think about that, this is remarkable. This man's first step is to leap, not to stagger. It's an instantaneous miracle. It's dramatic. As he'd been sitting there, his legs useless to him all the days of his life. Suddenly, he leaps up and he's walking and leaping and praising God. There is a transformation that is not natural. It is miraculous. Beyond his wildest dreams, he just wanted a few coins. He receives the strength of his legs. Well, verse 9 to 10, you're still in the narrative. Verse 9 to 10, you have the response of the people. So you've got the response of Peter to the man. You've got the response of the man to Peter. Now you've got the response of the people to the miracle. And it says this, verse 9 to 10, all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they knew. It says they knew it was he which sat for arms at the beautiful gate of the temple. So they knew it was him. They saw him walking and praising God. They were filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened unto him. No wonder. So this is doing what the miracles were meant to do. This is doing what the signs and wonders were meant to do at the beginning. They were not to do, uh, they were not gratuitous. They weren't done to exalt Peter and John, obviously, but they were done to affirm their identity as apostles and representatives of Jesus Christ and of God and to cause people to take seriously the message of Christ in these early days. And that's what happened. In verse number 10, they were amazed. They were filled with awe, with wonder. And everybody ran together, greatly wondering. So there you have, that's, that's the first part. So you've got, the, you've got the, the miracle, you've got the healing. Now you've got the sermon in the second part, second part. Peter's now going to preach. So he doesn't let the opportunity pass. He's going to preach and he'll preach in response to questions. So you've got this fantastic situation where you've got the miraculous done, which provokes all wonder and amazement, but also two questions uh, which he answers, or two questions which he will address. And then you have the opportunity to explain where the power for this came from. So that's what follows. So note with me, if you would, from verse number 13. Down. Verse 12, I should say, you've got the question. So notice this, as he begins, he addresses them and he says, ye men of Israel. Now remember, this is three o'clock in the afternoon in Jerusalem. Everyone are men of Israel. Um, why would they be up at the temple? And his questions, his questions address two issues, I should say. So he, he asks the question, number one, why marvel ye at this? Number two, why look ye so earnestly on us as though by our own power or holiness we have made this man 
to walk. First question, why are you amazed at the miraculous? You're standing at a temple. You've come to worship God. Why are you amazed that a miracle has happened? God is the miracle worker. Don't be amazed. As men of Israel, you should know that your God does great wonders. You should know that your God has done the miraculous. And you've come to worship him. Have you forgotten that your God is the God of wonders, the God of the miraculous? He is God. Why marvel ye at this? Have you lost the sense of that? That's his first rebuke. His second question is this. Why are you looking at us as if we did this? We didn't do this. And so he wants to point them away from himself and John towards the Lord Jesus. So he specifically says in verse 12, Why look ye so earnestly in us? As though by our own power or holiness we've made this man to walk. So he says, look, we did not do this by virtue of our own power nor of our own holiness. So he's going to point them towards where the source of power and holiness is. And that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he begins to preach. It's a great sermon, actually. It's a sermon that is obviously addressed to people with a Jewish background or people who are Jewish. And he begins in this way. So he says, the God of Abraham, verse 13, and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers hath glorified his son, Jesus. His son, his servant. <clears throat> and Peter begins by doing what they often did which was building a historical connection between the Old Testament and Jesus. So he says, the God that you worship, in fact, the God of this temple, is the God who has a son, his name is Jesus, and a servant, his name is Jesus. And he makes this connection which was so important for people in those days. And it's still important today. Um, who was I speaking to? Yeah, I was speaking to um, the man who owns the kiosk, or at least was working in the kiosk. Now, if you're not from Bridgeway, you don't know where that is, but it's the wee shop, Jeremy knows where it is, um, where we get a pint of milk or whatever on the Houston Road. And uh, it was a Sunday recently, and uh, in fact, it was the Sunday of the conference, and I had to nip down and get some milk before breakfast. So I went down to get milk, and um, this is, I had a suit on. So as I walked in, uh, it was almost an unusual thing for him to see. So, and I walked in, my suit on, and mocked though you may, it provided a gospel opportunity. So there you go. Um, and the man said to me, this is a strange time to go to work. And I said, I'm not actually going to work. I'm going to church down in Hope Hall. And he's like, oh, really? So what do you do for a job? And I told him. And um, he then said, I've got a question for you. He said, what is the main difference between your Christianity and my Islam? Um, so before I could say anything, he was obviously witnessing to me, and so he went straight into his wee witnessing line. So he said, I'll tell you the difference from my point of view <laughs> immediately. So there's a clue for witnessing, let other people speak, because I was just about to speak, and then he spoke over me. And then he said this, he said, I feel the difference is this, that we agree with you with the Old Testament. And a lot of the Old Testament is like our Quran. 
He said, we believe the Old Testament was written by God, but we believe the New Testament was just written by men. So we're happy with the Old Testament, we're not happy with the New Testament. I thought that was interesting, so I began a very brief conversation with him, um, although he was, he was transmitting, not receiving. But nonetheless, uh, I'll speak to him again about it, but there was a little opportunity. But it was interesting to me that that connection between Old and New Testament is a disconnect for him. He doesn't believe that the New Testament story of the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel of Christ and so on is divine, is from God. Well, you see, Jewish people that were listening to this sermon would face the same basic issue, which is that the Old Testament they believed to be of God, obviously the New Testament hadn't been written, but the Lord Jesus Christ, the Jesus of the New Testament, they didn't believe to be of God. And that was a problem as you go through the book of the Acts. So the preaching very often was designed to build that connection, to demonstrate that the Jesus of the New Testament was actually the Son of God and was the God of the Old Testament. And that what happened to the Lord Jesus, what he did here, his death and so on, was in fact consistent with the Old Testament prophets. This really is the bulk of this sermon. That's what it's designed to establish and to persuade. Now obviously when we're witnessing today, we're witnessing generally to a different audience who doesn't know the Bible or doesn't believe any of it to be divine or doesn't really look for a connection between the two. But that was the context here. And that's why the sermon goes as it does. So he begins it in this way, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. You, wouldn't, you know, when you're speaking to someone at school or speaking to someone at college or whatever, you're not going to say, listen, I'd like to speak to you about the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac. I'm like, whoa, who are they? Never heard of them. You know, what, what are you talking about? It would be a total the wrong position to start from. But for him, no, the right position because they're standing just before the temple and they're going up at the time of prayer. So here's a, here's a group of people going to pray to God and he says, listen, the God that you're going to pray to, I want to introduce you to his son. And his son is actually Jesus, the Jesus that's just been crucified. So he begins to preach this and to establish this. Notice how he does, he says, the God that we worship, that you worship, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son, Jesus. So he makes that connection in terms of identity. Who is Jesus Christ? Who is he really? And, you know, you can do this in the Old Testament. I was listening to, to Blair, who was at our conference, but also I was with him elsewhere, and uh, he spoke in one of the the, the servant songs of Isaiah. So uh, that's the sort of area that you can go to in your own studies. I actually noted it down here, where, where you can get sections of the Old Testament that particularly are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, pointed forward, prophesied before he came and were fulfilled when he came and will be fulfilled by him in the future, which establish clearly his identity as the servant songs, the servant of God, the son of God. But then what he does is this, having identified Jesus Christ as connected to and glorified by the God, that, the God of this temple, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, God of our fathers, he then doesn't modify his preaching. 
So sometimes I think we are afraid to be direct. I don't mean rude. No excuse for being rude in any form of witnessing. Or aggressive. No need to be aggressive or shouty or whatever. But he's very direct. And he makes no apology for his direct statement. Look at it. Whom ye delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate. Even though Pilate would let him go, the Roman governor. You as Jews were determined to deny him, verse 14. He's the holy one and the just. You want, and he's building this. You denied him. You wanted a murderer. But notice verse 15. You killed. There's an accusation of murder here. You wanted a murderer and you became murderers. You killed the prince of life. Death and life in the one sentence. That idea of prince of life is the author of life. You put to death the one from whom life comes. So this is, very briefly, and I won't go into it in much detail, this is what they did. Notice the verbs. Whom ye delivered up, denied, denied, desired, killed. That's what they did. They're standing there. Then he says, you did that. Listen to what God did. God, who's the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, the God and Father of, our, of us, is what he's saying. As a Christian, he's, he's claiming God, and he says this, God raised him from the dead. That's what you did, that's what God did. You're coming to worship God. That's what he did. He raised him from the dead. Now notice, he then says what the disciples did. Whereof we are witnesses. So here's the thing. This is what you did. This is what God did. This is what we are doing. And this is what we did. We are witnesses. And he speaks of the prince of life. They put him to death and God raised him from the dead. He's basically saying, you were out of step with God big time. In fact, you murdered the Lord Jesus. You couldn't be more out of step with God. And then he brings his sermon to the point. So think about this. God is the God of that temple. Follow it through in your mind. He's the God of that temple. He's the God of our history, of our fathers. Speaking to this Jewish audience. His son was here. That's what you did to him. That's what God did, raised him from the dead. We are standing as witnesses to him now. We're bearing testimony to him. Now what's that got to do with what's just taken place? So in verse 16, he brings it back round to the miracle and he says, and his name, the name of the Lord Jesus, remember he's the prince of life, through faith in his name hath made this man strong. He said, he did it. You denied him, you killed him. He did this through faith in his name. They should have known. So he's explained what's happened. Now, he's not finished his sermon. So there's explanation and information, this might be my bonnet, that preaching the gospel requires explanation and information. He doesn't just stand up 
and say, repent, trust Jesus. That's not enough. He needs to explain. He needs to actually give information so that they can respond to what they are learning and what they have been told. And so now he does come to the punch of his sermon. He says, and now brethren, they should have known. But through ignorance, they did this. So number one, their ignorance. And number two, the ignorance of their rulers. Now we get that from other scriptures and 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8, if they had understood, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. That's not to imply that their ignorance is an excuse. They are guilty, but there is forgiveness available. There's a basis for hope. This was not willful, informed rejection. It was rejection out of ignorance. They didn't know. They were blinded. They were in darkness. And so he brings the gospel to them, a message of repentance in verse 19. So verse 18, you should have known because the prophets explained that Christ should suffer and that's been fulfilled. So in verse 19, he says, repent, be converted that your sins may be blotted out. And the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. Now remember he's speaking to people of Israel and remember there is going to be a time of national blessing um, a national repentance and I think he's alluding to that as he preaches to them and he's also speaking about the need for them personally to repent. This idea of refreshment is, I think, linked to the future blessings that will take place, particularly as he goes on to explain them, and will take place in the millennial kingdom that's yet to come. You get that from verse 19 down to verse number 21 in particular. And then in verse 22, we're kind of skipping over that, but in verse number 22, notice he then also explains that Moses, so he's raising it to his final pitch, that not only was there prophecies that should have, should have informed them, they were ignorant, they should have known, but he draws them to this man Moses, the father of the nation. And Moses prophesied the coming of the Lord Jesus. He says, a prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say to you. Deuteronomy chapter 18 is the section. And Moses, generally it was agreed amongst the, the, the Jewish people, was speaking about the coming Messiah. And here Peter links Moses and the prophets that followed in verse 24. All the prophets from Samuel and those that followed also spoke. He's just laying on. And then in verse 25, he says, ye are the children of the prophets and the covenant and, and so forth. And God will bless you nationally, but he also wants to bless you individually. That's the kind of theme of his preaching. So you bring all this together. <clears throat> And what you have here is a snapshot of what was taking place in these early days. You have this idea of the signs and wonders associated with apostleship. This is all going on in Acts chapter 2. It's in that context. Just, you know, in Acts chapter 2, you've got the general statement they continued daily with one accord in the temple. Chapter 3, this is an event that took place as they continued daily. And he will progress from chapter 4 on. Here in chapter 3, you've got an explanation of the miraculous and the preaching of it to that Jewish audience. It is a wonder 
If you take the time, I dig into it, and I'm not going to do that tonight, but if you take the time and dig into it, the detail that Peter preached here is worth just pondering as he unpacks to them how the Lord Jesus Christ was the fulfilment of all these Old Testament prophecies and all his suffering and how in a future day the blessings of Israel as a nation that will come when there is this regeneration that takes place for them will again be sourced in the Lord Jesus Christ who is their Messiah. That's another subject. I'm not going to get into that this evening. But the saviour that was preached then is the saviour that we preach today. Don't make the mistake of taking sermons that were preached to a Jewish audience and thinking they have to be followed verbatim in any witness or preaching to any, any audience. It's not the case. We have a different audience often, but nonetheless the presentation of Christ in the gospel follows these similar type of patterns that we have here. So that's Acts chapter 3, and that's me done for this evening and for the year. I'm not sure we'll continue in Acts into the new year. We may do. I think we might be selective in what we do because it's a very big book, So, and a lot of it is narrative. <coughs> so we might just focus in on certain sections uh, that I think are particularly significant in the flow of uh, teaching through the book of Acts. So let's just pray. We'll give thanks for what we have looked at this evening and also the food. Um, that we're about to enjoy as well. Let's just pray.